Well, we're going to uh, jump into 1 Corinthians 15 here in just a second. But I was reflecting uh, a little earlier this week uh, about a couple years ago and how often we take for granted being able to be together and worship on Easter Sunday. So uh, two years ago, I remember Easter Sunday uh, 2020. Um, actually, this auditorium was empty, and um, I preached uh, the Easter message to uh, all these empty pews here, and uh, and then we put it on our um, live stream and website. I, I much prefer to preach to people than empty pews. It's a little easier to do that, and so uh, thank you for being here today, and um, we're just going to pray that um, God will use something today to encourage our hearts um, the world in which we live, we need encouragement, don't we? And if we can't get encouragement here, then where else can we turn? And so I hope and pray that you'll be encouraged today. I want to ask you a question this morning, and I'm thinking about, if I were to ask you, what's the most significant day in history? Uh, we could take time to open that up this morning, but uh, I jotted down a few significant days in my lifetime uh, and so let me just share a couple of dates, and as soon as I share them, you'll, you'll probably associate the event. Here was a significant day in my lifetime, November 22nd, 1963. I was a third grader at a Christian school in Cleveland, Ohio. I remember getting picked up after school, and as I got in the car, I think when my dad picked me up, he told me the, the news that the President of the United States had been shot. And that was a significant day that just uh, changed the course of, of America. Uh, here's another one, July 20th, 1969. I don't know if that rings a bell with anybody. That's the day that Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon. I remember that very, very clearly. It was a Wednesday night, and I remember um, coming home, watching TV in this fuzzy picture, and Neil Armstrong steps off that lunar module, and he sets foot on the moon. He says, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And, uh, and man had walked on the moon. Here's a more recent one, September 11th, 2001. Uh, Tuesday morning changed our lives. Um, we could go on and expand that to beyond my lifetime and your lifetime, although this would be in some of your um, lifetime here, December 7th, 1941, I'm a collector of newspaper headlines, and uh, I wasn't around when this newspaper came out, but uh, uh, here it is. Um, this is the Honolulu Star Bulletin, uh, War Oahu Bombed by Japanese Planes and Pearl Harbor, and that impacted um, our world as we went into World War II. How about March 7th, 1876? That's when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. And now we've all got these little computers and telephone devices that we use. But that changed our world. How about the day that Al Gore started the Internet? Well, at least that's what he claims. <laughs> that's, that's changed our world, the Internet. Uh, here's a couple other. Uh, in church history, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther took that 95 thesis and he nailed it to the church door of the Wittenberg Chapel and the Protestant Reformation began. One other, 1440, I don't have the exact date, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press and now we can have books to read and things like that. All these events changed the world, but what I tell you this morning and share with you this morning that 
they all pale in significance to the date that we're going to look at, the event that we're going to look at, and it's the resurrection of Jesus, which is the most significant day in human history. So springtime of what, 33 AD perhaps? Uh, we don't know the exact date, but what we're celebrating today is the most significant day in history. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to run through an outline, uh, look at some application points, and then uh, we're going to close with a tremendous song by David Phelps. He's going to do it by uh, video here, the end of the beginning, and uh, you, um, your heart will be moved by that song. So that's kind of where we're headed uh, this morning. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. This is known as the resurrection chapter. The Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and we're about 20, 25 years post-resurrection of Jesus. So this is about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's writing this around 55 AD, and it's called the resurrection chapter. And so uh, here's uh, our outline this morning. The first point is the priority of the resurrection. The priority of the resurrection And for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump right into verse 3 here. Paul writes, For what I have received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So Paul says, I want to tell you something, and here's what I want to tell you. This is of first importance. The word is protos. In the Greek, it means a prototype, a priority. Paul's saying, this is the most important thing I want to share with you. Now we know that the Bible says that all of Scripture is God-breathed, inspired. Every, every verse in Scripture is God-breathed. But I want to tell you something. Some sections of Scripture are much more important than others. And Paul says this is a top priority. It's something we all need to learn to do in, in our lives is to prioritize what we need to accomplish uh, we do that in the workplace, don't we? And I don't know if you're a list maker. Some of you might be list makers, and you want to write a list of what you want to accomplish for that day or maybe for that week. And then you begin to what? Hopefully prioritize what really needs to be done, uh, the most important thing, and do that first. Uh, that's how I uh, operate in my weekly schedule because uh, I devote Monday and Tuesday to sermon preparation. And uh, that kind of frees up, hopefully, the rest of my week. But Monday and Tuesday, if I get to Tuesday, hopefully um, about 80 to 90 percent of my sermon is done. And it it wouldn't go over very well if I got up here on Sunday and said, you know, I had a really busy week and it really didn't get to doing the sermon. So uh, God bless you and have a great week. Wouldn't be pastor here for very long. Um, We all have to do that, don't we? And the Apostle Paul says, this is of first importance. And what does he say is the most important thing? Here it is. It's the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 is the essence of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so the gospel is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. And as we're going to see in a little bit, without the resurrection, without Jesus being alive, there there is no gospel. There is no good news. And so uh, the priority of the resurrection, Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? If he has a lot of material goods during this life, but 
ends up separated from God for all of eternity. And so the priority of the resurrection. Well, the Apostle Paul moves on in this passage and he begins to talk about the proof of the resurrection. The proof of the resurrection. Verses 5 through 8. And the Apostle Paul makes a list of eyewitnesses who actually saw Jesus, in some cases talked to Jesus, in some cases touched Jesus and had a meal of Jesus. These are people that saw him post-resurrection. Now we know the, the pattern of, of Jesus' life, Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday morning, and then the scripture says for 40 days he made post-resurrection appearances. So for six weeks he made appearances to different people. And then on that 40th day, he ascended to heaven. Ten days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given, Acts chapter 2. But there was a six-week window there where Jesus appeared to people. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us a partial list. I think in your bulletin, you have an insert that gives a pretty much the extensive list of the people that he appeared to. But let me just read the, the list from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul makes this partial list. Uh, Jesus was raised on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He appeared to the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or some have died. So he's writing 20, 25 years after the resurrection. He says he appeared to 500 people at one time. Most of them are still living. He's basically saying, go talk to them. Check this out. Then he goes on to list some others that he appeared to. Verse 7, James, uh, then again to all the apostles, and lastly, Paul says, he appeared to me. So the proof of the resurrection, Paul lists eyewitnesses who actually saw Jesus. Do you know that in our court system, one eyewitness can put somebody in prison behind bars for the rest of their life? If you have one eyewitness to a crime or something that happened, maybe a murder, you can put a person away for the rest of their lives in prison. I think back to the so-called trial of the century and O.J. Simpson's trial that some of us remember. And uh, America was fascinated with that trial. It was broadcast on TV every day. And there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. There was a bloody glove. There were some bloody shoe prints that matched the shoes that O.J. Simpson was wearing that day. And uh, various circumstantial evidences. What they did not have was one eyewitness who could say, I saw O.J. Simpson murder his wife. And he was not convicted. Now, he was in the civil case. It has a little lower level of... Um, um, conviction, but no eyewitnesses. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul and he's a, he's in a, a courtroom and he brings the, the list of eyewitnesses to the, the, the judge and the court and he, and uh, they look at it and like, there's 550 names on here. <laughs> You're gonna bring all these witnesses and say, I saw Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul with the proof of the resurrection, he says, you can talk to people. Over 500 people saw him. And uh, Peter, uh, 
on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, preached that uh, powerful sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He states these words, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. So we know on that sermon that 3,000 people came into the church. Paul says it was impossible, or Peter says it's impossible for death to hold him. Now, where was that sermon given? In Jerusalem. Where was Jesus' tomb? In Jerusalem, not very far from where Peter was preaching. It would have been very easy for someone to disprove what Peter said. All they had to do was like, okay, let's open up that tomb again. And uh, here's the body of Jesus. Nope, didn't happen. The proof of the resurrection, Paul lists all of these eyewitnesses. Well, then Paul goes on to the problem uh, if there is no resurrection. That's the next section here, 12 through 19. And uh, let's look at it. The problem, if there is no resurrection, Paul begins with a question, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's saying, we're preaching Christ crucified, but there are people out there that are saying, no, we don't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. We believe that the grave is the end. It's called annihilism. Uh, one of the groups that believed that in uh, the first century church was the Sadducees. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It was a religious, Jewish religious sect. And one of the beliefs of the Sadducees, it's in Acts 23.8, they did not believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. And um, as I was told long ago in seminary, that's why they're sad, you see. Yeah, there's no resurrection. There's Sadducees. So there were people in Paul's day that didn't believe in the resurrection. There are people today that don't believe in the resurrection. So I looked up the latest statistics in uh, our country. Uh, this was a survey by a Lifeway survey. It's the arm of the Southern Baptists. What percentage of Americans say they believe? This is 2021, so recent. What percentage of Americans say they believe the biblical account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus? And so um, the result of that survey is like is 66%. So two-thirds of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Well, that leaves a third that don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, 20% said they did not believe in a resurrection. 14% were unsure. So that's where I think that adds up to 100%. Someone can check my math there. Uh, but two-thirds of Americans believe, a third don't. In England, it's even worse. Uh, BBC did a survey about four or five years ago. Only 50% of English adults believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the doctrine of the resurrection. Well, Paul goes through this long list. I think there's seven or eight points here. We're just going to zip through them. He says, if there is no resurrection, um, Houston, we have a problem. And he begins to, he begins to list the, the problems here. Uh, verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. So Christ hasn't risen. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, the tomb is not empty. He goes on to say, our preaching is useless. 
We're wasting our time because we're proclaiming what? The gospel, that the tomb is empty. We're wasting our time here. We might as well be, I was going to say out golfing, but it's too cold. We might, we should not be doing something else if there's no resurrection. Our preaching is useless. Verse 14, the second part, your faith is useless. You're believing a lie. Verse 15, we are false witnesses. The apostles are, are, are liars. We're false witnesses. Again, verse 15, or 17 rather, your faith is futile. Oh, think about this in verse 15. He says, um, he, if he did not raise from the dead, in fact, the dead are not raised. Uh, this is verse 17. Excuse me. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're still in your, your sins haven't been forgiven. And uh, that's a big problem. You're still in your sins. You, you, and you have this debt that you could never repay to God. Uh, verse 18. He goes on to say, those, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Our loved ones that have died and that, that were, were believers in Christ, they're lost too. We have no hope. But then the whole verse and section changes with verse 20, and that's the pivotal verse, the proclamation. Here is the truth that we're celebrating this morning. Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. All you people are saying he hasn't been risen from the dead. He didn't rise from the dead. He has risen. And that's the crucial point in the whole chapter. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Oh, this next phrase is significant. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Now, what's the first fruits? Um, it's an Old Testament principle, but the first fruits we were to bring to God, uh, first fruits of our crops, and it means there's more to come. And when Paul refers to the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus is saying, I was the first one to rise from the dead, but there's more to come. And that gives us hope. That gives us encouragement. Because the Bible talks about future resurrections. The Bible, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. I don't know if we have in our outline this um, picture. Um, so uh, this, this, I'm trying to make this personal. And uh, I remember growing up in the church, my dad, who's on the blue shirt there on the end, uh, was pastoring in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And I was a young person on Easter Sunday I noticed that uh, for a lot of people, Easter was um, a very emotional day, and I didn't quite get it. But as I've gotten older in life, I, I get it, because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what gives us hope, hope of seeing our loved ones again someday. So my dad was the oldest of four boys in Buffalo, New York, and uh, uh, there's my dad in the blue shirt, and then his next brother, uh, Rich. My dad was born in 1929. Uh, his brother, Rich, a good uh, U.S. Marine there, served his country faithfully. He was born in 1931. Then the next brother was Jim, his brother Jim. He was born in 1933. And then there was a long gap, and 14 years after uh, 
uh, Jim was born, uh, my dad's youngest brother, Jerry, was born. And so I had an uncle that wasn't that much older than me. It was kind of weird. Uh, he's like seven years older than uh, than I was. Uh, but that's my dad's uh, family. His, uh, his dad was a banker in Buffalo, New York. And uh, But uh, my dad died in August of uh, 2020 at 91. And uh, within uh, a year, uh, the other two brothers were gone. Uh, so then, uh, about nine, eight or nine months later, uh, the third brother, Jim, there in the yellow and white shirt, passed away. About six weeks after that, then uh, the brother number two here, son number two, Rich, passed away. And so those first three boys all died within a year, and my uncle lost all brother, all three boys' brothers in a short period of time. But I put that picture up there to say that uh, because they were believers in Christ, uh, there's hope. And when Paul talks about the first fruits of the resurrection, it means that uh, we who put our faith in Christ will see them again someday because there is a resurrection. So there's several resurrections that the Bible talks about uh, that are future resurrections. There's one at the rapture. First Thessalonians chapter 4 outlines that. The dead in Christ will be raised we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's another resurrection of tribulation saints who will uh, die during the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. There's another resurrection at the great white throne judgment. All people will be raised and have to stand before God. And uh, Revelation chapter 20 uh, talks talks about that. And so... The Apostle Paul says Christ is the first fruits, and then there's going to be future resurrections, and that gives us hope. Well, we need to keep moving on here. Uh, the next uh, thought here is the particulars of the resurrection. The particulars of the resurrection, and that's in verse, uh, beginning in verse 35. A couple of questions when we think about the resurrection, and maybe these are your questions as well. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? So if there's a future resurrection, how is that going to happen, and what kind of bodies will we have? And the good news this morning that I want to tell you is that your new body, body 2.0, is going to be a lot better than this, this body. And uh, that, can, that can give us some hope, that can give us some encouragement. Uh, we don't have time to go into depth in this passage, but the Apostle Paul starts out by talking about the seed, how a seed is planted in the ground and dies and then it springs to life. It's the same way with the body. The body has to die, but then there's resurrected life. So four contrasts between our present body and our resurrected body. And we're just going to run through this very, very quickly. Uh, so will it be, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. <laughs> we won't take a vote on all these, but would you rather have a perishable body or an imperishable body, a body that will never die? And of course, we'll all say, we'll take the imperishable <laughs> because these bodies are old and begin to break down and eventually die. Uh, the next... Contrast, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. 
So old body, dishonor, new body is going to be a glorious body. The old body is in dishonor. Dr. Erwin Lutzer in his book about the resurrection writes, At death, we put a covering over the body to shield our eyes from the indignity of the corpse. If you've watched any of the news and the horrific events that are going on in Ukraine, you you see the newscasts and uh, if there's some bodies there that are unfortunately laying in the street, they're, they're covered, aren't they? The body is, is, these bodies are in dishonor, but our new body is a glorious body. Again, we don't have time to look at it, but Matthew chapter 17 is the transfiguration where Jesus goes with three of his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he gives them a glimpse under the future body that he will have. And here is uh, uh, two people that join him. I think it's Moses and Elijah and and their bodies are shining and they're glorious bodies. That's what our new body is going to be like. The third contrast, uh, verse 43, uh, says, It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Would you rather have a weak body or a body that is a powerful body? And the answer is, we'll take the one that's raised in, in power. Again, Dr. Lutzer writes, what this means is that there will never, in our new bodies, there will never be a need for sleep. We will never be weary. We will never be out of breath. We will never need a vacation. Let the weariness we feel today be a reminder that we shall never feel such again for all of eternity in our resurrected bodies. We will never grow tired. The land of perpetual strength lies in our future. I'll take that body. There's a fourth contrast in verse 44. It says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So our present bodies are natural. The word really means sensual. Our new bodies are spiritual bodies. Notice I didn't say spirit bodies. It's not a spirit. A spiritual is an adjective. It's an actual body. Jesus' post-resurrection body uh, was a body of flesh and blood. It, it wasn't some sort of spirit body. He, he had people touch him. He offered to Thomas, put your finger through the nail prints in my hands. He had a fish dinner with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. It was a real flesh and blood body. It just is a new body described as a spiritual body. Uh, the natural body, again, Dr. Lutzer says, even such basic drives as hunger and thirst will no longer interrupt our schedules or opportunities for service. Revelation seventeen sixteen. never again will they hunger Never again will they thirst. Well, that's just a little quick contrast between these bodies and our new resurrected body, uh, which will be imperishable, a body of glory, power, and a spiritual body. That's a quick overview of 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, we want to conclude by thinking about now the practical applications of all of this. And what I love about 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Apostle Paul gives us the application right in the text. Sometimes when you're doing a sermon, you have to kind of dig for what does this mean for our lives. The Apostle Paul gives it to us at the end of 
uh, this chapter. And so we want to just think about uh, four practical truths of the doctrine of the resurrection and the tomb is empty. And uh, here is the first one. Verse 54. First one is this, that death, death has been defeated. You know, Hebrews 2 talks about why Jesus came, and it says, He came to deliver us who were in fear of death for our whole lives. And Paul says, death, through the resurrection of Jesus, has been defeated in fact, Jesus proclaims in Revelation chapter 1, 18, uh, 17 and 18, uh, he says these words, I was dead, I am the living one, I am alive forever and ever. And Paul says the grave and death has been defeated he writes, when this perishable has been clothed with imperishable, when the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus' resurrection defeated death. Death has been defeated. It was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, that said, someday you'll read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. And he says, don't you believe it? Because on that day, I will be more alive than I've ever been. Death has been defeated. Secondly, uh, we have victory in Jesus. Uh, Paul goes on to write, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so death has been defeated. Jesus is victorious over all of our enemies, um, our three enemies of the Christian, the world, the world system that is anti-God, uh, the flesh, the devil. Uh, and Jesus is victorious over all of those. Satan is a defeated foe. Christ is victorious. Number three, the application is this. Verse 58 he goes on to say, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. So here's the third, third truth. Because of this, we need to stand firm in the truth. We, we need to know what we believe and, and not let things uh, uh, discourage us or sway us from the, the truth of, of Scripture and the hope that we have. Satan loves to create doubt in our life. And we need to stand firm on the, the promises of God and the truth of Scripture. John eight thirty two, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Paul wrote to the Galatians who made an initial profession of faith in Christ and then went back to their old religious system of sacrifices and daily sacrifices and legalism. And Paul says, uh, who, why have you been so quickly removed from what you believe? Stand firm in the truth. And then the last application is this, last part of verse 58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Truth number four is faithfully, energetically keep serving God. Why? Because your labor is not in vain. 
Only one life will soon be passed. The saying goes, only what's done for Christ will last. So the Apostle Paul says, keep on serving God. And uh, as part of a, of a local church, boy, we can't function without people serving. I just made a quick list of uh, people who, who serve in our own church. We have musicians, we have teachers, we have office workers, uh, building maintenance, uh, someone that takes care of lawn maintenance, ushers, greeters, Awana workers, treasures, uh, cookies for our fellowship time, junior church workers, tech people who help us with our sound, and on and on and on it goes. Um, and Paul's saying, don't be discouraged. Keep serving the Lord. Because what you're doing makes a difference. And it's going to make a difference for all of eternity. The most significant day in history is 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. And our challenge and question to you this morning is the same question that Jesus asked to Martha when he raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus made this claim, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Here's the question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And that's my challenge to you. Is your faith in Jesus? Jesus alone. Uh, He's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we repent of our sin, when we realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin debt, a debt that we could never repay, and when we put our faith in him and him alone, we pass from death to life. We put our assurance of our eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus. And he says, you will never, never die. You will live forever in my presence. That's the good news of the gospel. And I trust that's your hope today. I mentioned we were going to close with a a song, and um, let me just give it a little bit of an introduction. This is by a fellow by the name of David Phelps, one of the most powerful, gifted singers uh, on the planet today, Christian singers. Um, Diane and I had the privilege of hearing him this past summer at Maranatha. And as I was thinking about this song, uh, it's called The End of the Beginning. It's about five or six minutes long. Uh, We're going to play it for you was thinking about how last Sunday I was uh, watching the Masters golf tournament. And, of course, if you follow sports at all, you know that uh, Tiger Woods um, played in the Masters, and that was a really big deal. Uh, Scotty Scheffler, who's a uh, dedicated Christian, um, won, that, won that tournament. And his interview after the golf tournament was, no, I, I play for the glory of God. Golf doesn't define me. Um, my relationship with Christ is what defines me. But as I watched that at the end of the tournament when, when Tiger Woods finished the 72nd hole and there were thousands of people there and he's walking through the crowd to the clubhouse, thousands of people were on their feet and they were clapping and they were cheering and yelling for Tiger and the same thing with Scotty Scheffler with him and his wife walked through just a massive tunnel of people. People were clapping and getting excited about the golf tournament. And so I was thinking about Is it okay to get excited about what Christ has done for us? Is it okay to, at some point, stand on our feet and maybe give a clap or a hallelujah for what Christ has done? And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, We're going to play this song. About at the five-minute mark, 
And it's really the story of the life of Christ. David Phelps sings it, and he sings it three times. But on the third day, but on the third day, but on the third day, and then he says, he rose. And uh, right there on about that third time, he says the third day, if you have a pulse, you'll want to be on your feet. And uh, whatever makes you comfortable, praise God, clap, cheer. And And we just have the words on the screen.
you've done. We're so thankful that you came and took our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ who did for us what we could never do. Become that perfect sacrifice to appease a holy God. And Lord, we thank you that uh, the grave is empty. Uh, The tomb is empty. You conquered death. And we thank you for the significance in our life, that for those who put our trust in you, we too uh, will be resurrected someday to spend eternity with you. Thank you for the hope that that gives us. Uh, Lord, may it encourage our hearts. And I pray that if there's one here today that uh, doesn't have that assurance, doesn't know for sure where their eternal destiny lies, Lord, thank you that uh, we can have that assurance as we... Uh, repent of our sin, and put our faith in you. So we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the empty tomb. We rejoice in all that you have done, and we give you praise and thanks. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.